I think the Lord's got something for us. Through his, uh, through worship, through the word this morning, it's a privilege to be with you again and worship the living God. This morning is going to be our last uh, sermon in our series through marks of a healthy church. And so <clears throat> uh, I hope these things have been helpful and um, as we think through them and as we think about the future of our church and the direction the Lord wants to take us, these are all areas in which we want to grow. Um, uh, you know, as we talked about, just uh, evangelism and uh, <coughs> membership and discipleship and discipline. And now this morning, we're going to talk about biblical church leadership. And as we pursue these things in the fear of the God, in the fear of God and his word, uh, he's going to take us where he wants us to go. And all we have to do is trust and obey and let God do the work. And so as we conclude this series, we're going to talk about what is biblical church leadership. But before we do, let's pray together one more time. Father, we come now in the fear of you, asking for you to work in our midst. Lord, we desire above all else to be a healthy church. And we just thank you for the work that you have done in our church family, that you are doing. And Lord, that... You will do, Lord. We're always looking, Lord, for where we can be more faithful to you, God, more obedient, more bold, more courageous, to make a difference in this world for you, to glorify your name, God, in this community, to see our loved ones and friends and acquaintances, God, come to know you and be forgiven of our sins, their sins, and welcomed into your eternal family. And Lord, we just desire to render you the praise, God, that you are due with our lives and with this church. And so we we do pray, God, that you would shape us in each and every one of these areas, God, to be healthy, to be vibrant, to be uh, uh, a lampstand. Lord, in Revelation, you were called the church's lampstands, God, burning for you, Lord. We want to be bright and burning lamp for you. In this community, as bright, God, as we can be. So show us the way, God. Grant us the faith and the trust and the submission, God, to your word to be obedient, Lord, at every point. And we believe, God, that as we trust and obey, you will work and act, Lord. You told the Israelites as they stood before the Red Sea, just sit and watch. And, Lord, that's what we want to do. We want to be obedient As we watch you do, God, what you're going to do for us. So bless us now, we pray, as we talk about biblical church leadership in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. That's where we'll begin this morning. Uh, And as we think about biblical church leadership, we just kind of want to ask some reflection questions. For example, who leads the church? Who leads the church? You've you got to think about that carefully. Who determines the direction the church takes? I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the answer to this question is a little more complex than we typically think. You see, the church is different from other organizations. It's not a business. It's not even merely a nonprofit. It's not a country club, and it's not a McDonald's. We can just have it our way. That's that's not what the church is. The church is a divine institution. It is the household of God. It is the present-day temple 
the Bible says, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, built together, as Peter said, with living stones. It is the body of Christ, conforming to His will. It is the sheep of His pasture. It is, as Peter said, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we might proclaim the good news of His heavenly kingdom. Those who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into His marvelous light. The church is no ordinary place. And so if we want a healthy church, we have to stick to God's design for it. And that means that we can't first look at other places and at other institutions for how we should govern ourselves, but we have to look to God and say, God, what do you say about biblical church leadership? That's what I want to talk about this morning. We're going to begin in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. So now, if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 1, two verses here, verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of God you may be seated. So we're going to talk about three aspects of biblical church leadership this morning. We're going to talk about the congregation. We're going to talk about deacons. We're going to talk about pastors, elders, and overseers. The congregation deacons, and pastors, elders, and overseers. The first thing is we're going to talk about is the congregation. Um, uh, it is important, especially as Baptists, that we think about congregational authority. Uh, the reason uh, why we believe in congregational authority is not merely because that we are Baptists, and we're not simply Baptists because we believe we're, that's just our tribe that we're a part of, hopefully. We're Baptists because we believe that Baptist doctrine most closely accords with the teaching of the Scripture. Because it is the Scripture that is the ultimate authority on all matter of faith and practice. And we believe that it is the Bible that teaches that the congregation, uh, it, uh, the assembly of gathered believers, that is, is the is to exercise the final authority under Christ within the church. And it is the congregation as a whole that is ultimately accountable to Christ for the direction that it takes. And now to be clear, a certain caveat has to be, uh, an important statement has to be made as we talk about congregational authority. And that is this, does this mean then that the church is a democracy? We may be tempted to say yes, but in reality the answer is no. The church is not a democracy. We're Americans. We like democracy. You know, we didn't like taxation without representation, so we pitched a fit and threw tea in the sea about it. Okay? We, well, we like democracy, and democracy is good as a human form type of government. In fact, I think our founders got it just about as perfect as they possibly could with a democratic republic. But at the same time, the church is not a democratic republic. The church is a monarchy. The church is a theocracy. The church is not majority-led. The church is Christ-led. Christ is the head of the church. 
We look at those two verses again. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is the king of the church. The only, the only one whose will matters in the church is not my will. It's not your will. It's God's will. It's Christ's will. So then in what sense do we mean then that the congregation is the ultimate authority under Christ? What we mean is that uh, there are sufficiently clear pointers in Scripture, which we'll look at shortly, that show us that it is the congregation as a whole that is ultimately accountable to God for what? For discerning and upholding Christ's will within the church. Right? So that means... Now, contrary to what some may think or we just might kind of unwittingly assume, when we have a church conference, we are not, we're not taking a popularity vote. When we have a church conference, what we are saying is that in any given decision, we are discerning the will of Christ on this issue together. And when we make a decision together... Through church conference, we are saying that we believe together as a body of believers of Jesus Christ that we have discerned not our will, but Christ's will on this matter. And therefore, that's the path we're going to take. So we have to be clear about that because it's, it's tempting in democratic processes to think, well, you know, it's just we're just discerning what we want or what most people want or what most people's preferences are. That's not the job of the church. To determine what we want is the job of the church to determine what Christ wants for us. And so we do see uh, in Scripture then these pointers of congregational authority, and we've looked at several of them already, and we'll just briefly look at them again. Uh, they're especially clear in matters of church discipline. Two passages that we've looked at a number of times already, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you... Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, in the face of sexual immorality within the congregation, Paul says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. And so in, this, in these cases of unrepentant sin, what we see then that it wasn't the apostles Job. It wasn't the bishop's job. It wasn't even ultimately the pastor's job to enforce church discipline and excommunication. It was the church as a whole that was given this authority. It was the church that Christ understood and that the apostles understood. The church who as a whole have the responsibility of guarding the boundary lines of their church body. Of saying, this is who is in. This is who is out. This is the behavior that we will accept. This is the behavior we will not accept. That responsibility is given to the church. And Christ and the apostles expect the church as a whole to exercise 
that authority. It's not given to any single individual. Uh, what other authority do we see that's given to the church? Well, uh, the, uh, the choosing of leadership. For example, in Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 5, when there was a uh, conflict and the, uh, the, the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked in favor of the Hebrew-speaking widows in the early church. And this is what they did in Acts 6. It says that the twelve, that's the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom will we appoint, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte, of Antioch. And so what we see in this picture here is that Christ himself chose the apostles. That was a unique office in the history of the church as the apostles were given specifically by Christ to lay the foundation of the church. It's not an enduring office. But when uh, an urgent matter came up within the church, the apostles themselves did not, as it were, throw down the hammer. But they say, look, you, they, it says there, it says uh, in verse 2 in Acts 6, they summoned the full number of the disciples. They summoned the whole congregation. And they said, you choose godly men, men of integrity and wisdom of proven character and who walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You, they, they entrusted that responsibility to the congregation, expecting them to be able to discern who was wise and godly among them. And saying, you choose these from among you to take care of this important responsibility within the church. And so the apostles gave this responsibility uh, to the church. And they expected the church to be able to exercise the wisdom and discernment to identify those among them who were capable of leading in this area in wisdom and integrity and fullness of the Holy Spirit. And uh, a final pointer that we see to congregational authority is that the apostles... Uh, expected the churches to have the ability to discern truth from error. We see this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, where the Galatians were embracing uh, this uh, false gospel of works plus Jesus. And Paul writes, says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your own eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And you could read the whole letter to see that when Paul writes to the Galatians, because they have embraced false teaching. Now, of course, it's the responsibility of pastors and elders and overseers, which we'll talk about later, to guard the doctrine of the church. But note, when the church at Galatia was uh, infiltrated and they were embracing these false doctrines, when he wrote the letter, he does not directly and immediately address the leaders of the church. Who does he address? The church as a whole, the whole church, saying, who has bewitched you? Why have you embraced the false gospel? The apostle Paul expects that the church as a whole should have the responsibility and the wisdom and the discernment to discern truth from error. And when they don't, he's the one, he rebukes the whole congregation for it. 
saying, you should know better. You should know the truth. You should cling to the truth and uphold and defend the pure gospel against false teaching. And so what do we see about congregational authority? What significance does this have? Well, it undergirds the Baptist belief in congregational polity. That is, that the congregation as a whole is ultimately responsible for the governance of the church, the guarding of its doctrines, the upholding of its offices, the choosing of its leaders, and the exercising of its discipline. So, if we were going to ask who leads Cottondale Baptist Church, well, nine times out of ten, you would say the pastor. And in a sense, of course, that's true. But in another sense, if you understand church membership, you should say, I do. I lead Cottondale Baptist Church because I am part of the body which is responsible for guarding its doctrine, for choosing its leaders, for exercising its discipline. And so what this also does is it underscores the significance then of regenerate church membership. That is only accepting into our membership those who offer credible professions of faith and more or less verifiable evidence that they are born again and growing in the Lord. Why is that so important, especially to Baptists? Because if you are a member of the church, you are a leader of the church. You are part of the governing authority of the church. And that's why in the past, uh, Baptist churches uh, took their responsibility a lot more seriously because they understood that when you admit someone into membership, you are giving them a say in the direction the church takes. So it's not a small matter. It's not a small thing to be a church member. It is to be part of the governing body of the church. It is to be accountable to God for how we lead and serve and guide our church family. And so what we need to see then in terms of uh, church authority is that we need to see that we ourselves play a huge role in the direction that this church takes. And if, it, and if it takes a direction that is not good, we can't just point fingers at other people before we first point a finger at ourselves. You know, when we stand before God, all of us individually and collectively at a church, we can always point fingers at somewhere else. And God says, no, 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 let me do the finger pointing at other people. I'm looking at you. What did you do? To guide your church in the way that, that God wanted it to go. What did you do to exercise your privileges and responsibility as a member of Cottondale Baptist Church? To ensure that they were choosing godly leaders. To ensure that they were upholding sound doctrine. To ensure that they were exercising his disciplines. To ensure that the ministries were healthy and being run in a, in a way that pleases the Lord. What were you doing to do that? You see, church membership. Remember what Peter called the church a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You know, one of the things that the Reformation, that Martin Luther made a big deal about in the Reformation was the priesthood of all believers, right? In the Catholic church, they have priests. But what Martin Luther said was say, well, hey, the Bible says every Christian is a priest, and so we actually betray our Reformation roots if we look to some pastor and say, well, well, it's up. that's his job. That's not my job. Now, the Bible says we're all priests. 
We're all ministers. Don't give up the greatest privilege that God has given you. Don't give up to some other people the greatest responsibility and joy that God has given you to serve others. Don't just say, well, that's their responsibility. It's all of our responsibility to be priests of God. Royal priests of God. And that's why church membership is glorious. And it's serious. And we should take congregational authority seriously. So that's the first aspect of biblical church leadership, is congregational authority. And the second aspect we want to look at is deacons. Deacons. Uh, The next two are are typically what we call the offices of the church. So there are two particular offices of enduring quality. And so as we talked about, the apostle uh, was a unique office uh, chosen by Christ, uh, eyewitnesses of his resurrection, That was not an enduring office. So if you see someone who calls himself an apostle, don't listen to what they have to say. But the Bible does outline two enduring offices for the healthy functioning of the church. That is pastor, elder, and overseer. And then the office of deacon. The office of deacon is described in 1 Timothy 3, where Paul is uh, outlining to Timothy, who Timothy is acting as an agent of the apostles, uh, of the uh, especially of the apostle Paul, and he so so in that sense he's charged with appointing elders and deacons, and so Paul gives Timothy these qualifications of who to look for to fulfill these offices within the church, and in First Timothy three eight and following, this is what it says of deacons: it says deacons likewise must be dignified, not double tongued, not addicted to much wine. Not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. The wives likewise must be dignified. Not slanderers but sober minded. Faithful in all things. Let the deacons each be the husband of one wife. Managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So what does this office mean? Well, the word deacon literally means servant. So, you know, we we think of it as a title, but in the Greek language, it was just the word for servant. That's what a deacon is, is a servant. The word translated deacon is diakonos, and the verb... Translated to serve in verse 13, for example, it says those who serve well as deacons, the, the word deacon is diakonos, and the word serve is diakoneo. So it's clear in the original language that the two words are closely related, even though you can't see that as clearly in the English. To be a deacon is to be a servant. To serve is to uh, be a deacon. To be a deacon is to lead by serving. To be a deacon is to lead by serving. In Acts chapter 6, many people see uh, the prototype, if you will, of the diaconate ministry. In Acts chapter 6, we read a little bit earlier, we'll read verses 2 through 4 again. It says, The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so many people see in Acts 6, 
uh, the prototype of the diaconate ministry. There was an important need within the church that was becoming divisive because there wasn't, there didn't seem to be a fair distribution of resources among the needy. Uh, and, and so these, uh, these men were chosen to step in and to meet these tangible needs of the church family, especially working to guard the unity of the church because that's what was at stake in the issue. And so, and so deacons then are, are servants. They're need meters. They're, they're ones who deal with division within the church and help maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. They're problem solvers. They're the firemen extinguishing the flaming arrows of division that the enemy would shoot into our midst. They're first responders on the scene to assess the situation, tend wounds, and prevent collateral damage. In the spirit of Acts 6, they are stewards over the important practical ministries of the church in order to uh, free up then the pastors and elders and overseers to focus on the ministry of prayer and the word. So it's, a, it's an important ministry. There's a, it's, a, it's a huge ministry within the church because these are godly men who step forth and lead the church by serving, who step up and meet tangible needs within our church family. You should pray for your deacons. And you should pray that God would raise up among us other godly men who would lead by serving. Other men who meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Men who will say, well, I'll step up and I'll stand in the gap. And you see, you see, there's a big sin, there's a sinful temptation that we all face when problems arise in any area of our life. Saying, instead of dealing with the problem, I'm going to turn and run from the problem and let somebody else deal with it. A deacon is someone, is a godly, wise man within the church family who sees a problem and runs to the problem. To deal with it. To fix it. To make it right. And we pray for more and more such men in our church. And the next office, uh, the, and the final office, is the office of pastor, elder, and overseer. I've referred to it using this threefold name, and that's intentional because in the Bible, the, those terms are used interchangeably to refer to the same office, pastor, elder, and overseer. In uh, 1 Timothy 3, Paul refers to it as the office of overseer, uh, which in some translation is, is, is bishop. But really, if you, look at, if you look at it, it's the same office as pastor or elder. In fact, probably one of the most common terms for the office is elder. And interestingly, the least used term for the office is the office of pastor, uh, which it's interesting why Baptists kind of cling to that term the most. But regardless, pastor, elder, and overseer are the same office. The qualifications are given in 1 Timothy 3. Paul says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So I'm just going to pause right there for one second. Paul understands that in any given congregation, there would be, should be, men who aspire to the office of overseer. Why? Because it's a noble task. It's a noble thing. It's a hard thing. It's a good thing. It's a thing that godly men should pursue if they... And, 
And we should ask, you know, Lord, does God want me to serve in that capacity? And, and again, you know, we're going to talk about it later, but you just, we think about pastor. People say, well, I'm not called to be a pastor, but we just, we typically think of pastor as, as you know, this, this, this paid church person who preaches on Sunday. But I, I want to paint a slightly different vision of that here in a minute. He says, so the point is this, let's pray that God would raise up qualified men who aspire to this noble task. He says, therefore, an overseer, because it is a noble task, verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if, he, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. More, <coughs> moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he might, may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And so it's important to note as Paul is outlining the disqualifications of an elder pastor and overseer, it's clear that the primary thing that Paul has in mind for church leadership, it was true of deacons and it's true of pastors and elders and overseers as well, is the most important thing is character. It's holiness. It's integrity. That's why you should pray for your leaders and pray for your pastors. Because, because the devil is out to steal, kill, and destroy, and every pastor has a, has, a, has a bullseye on the back of his head. And the devil's just out trying to take us down. It's, the, it's character, it's integrity, it's holiness that's so important. And this is important because we live in a businessy age where it's tempting. It's tempting for churches to look at a guy who maybe has lots of business experience and leadership skills. Maybe a guy with a very charismatic personality and can attract a crowd. And of course, none of those things are bad. In fact, they're very, they can be very useful to ministry and many leaders will have them. But the point is this, all the skills are worthless without character and integrity. So it doesn't matter how... You know, there, it's, you know, it's been on the news recently, and in several years, many prominent, prominent pastors have fallen into disgrace because they were great leaders, but they lacked a humility and integrity in private. And let me tell you something. Private indiscretion and private sin. Jesus said what, will be done, what has been done in secret will be proclaimed from the rooftops. It will be found out. And so it characters the primary quality that Paul is looking for, integrity. The overseer must be able to show their leadership ability by the proper managing of one's home, Paul says. I mean, it only makes sense because the church is what? It's God's family. So the proving ground of your leadership ability within uh, the church is your own home. Because if you, if you can care for your own family, you can care for God's family. Because that's what the church is. It's the family of God. Uh, there is one skill specifically mentioned. That is the skill of teaching. 
That doesn't mean, I would argue, that the elder has to be the greatest preacher you've ever heard. (laughs) All it simply means is that they have to be able to clearly and confidently and accurately uphold the truth of Christ and God's word. Don't have, to be, don't have to be the greatest orator known to man. You just got to be able to clearly articulate and plainly articulate the truth of the gospel. And the, the doctrine, that's what, that's what Paul charged Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. And so the, the, heart, then, the heart then of a pastor, elder, overseer is a man of character and integrity who can teach accurately and plainly and can fulfill the, the leading and shepherding Function and responsibility within a church family. And something that has been noted by many that I want us as the church to think about is something that uh, was a practice at one time, not not universally, but was a practice among some early Baptist churches, but is finding revival today among many churches. And that is the practice of a plurality of eldership. A plurality of eldership. What does that mean? Well, whenever, everywhere in the Bible where you see elders in a local church mentioned, it's always in the plural. For example, Titus 1.5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. That is, it seems to be that the apostolic practice was that when a church was planted, they would appoint elders, plural, in each church. Now, wh- wh- why would that be the practice? Well, to me, it seems to me that it, there's some good, clear, uh, wise reasons why they would do that. You know, Baptists, for whatever reasons, we have embraced what we might call the single, single pastor model of church leadership. And I'm flattered by it. You know, I really am. But the reality is is that the shepherding responsibility of almost any congregation is too much for one man. It's too much. It's impossible. And of course, course the danger is too that the church might become uh, centered about one man's personality or leadership skills or responsibility. And think about it. It's really an indictment on a church if there is only one man in the entire congregation that meets the qualifications of an elder. In every church, we should at least pray that there would be other men who meet these qualifications and who can help bear together the shepherding responsibility of the church so that all of that doesn't fall on one man, but that together there are a group of men who can guard, who can help lead the church in guarding the doctrine, in teaching in its various capacities, in leading it in in prayer, devoting themselves as in Acts 6 to the ministry of the word and the prayer together, seeking the Lord together for the direction and the life, and the health of this church. And that's why Paul says, whoever aspires to the office of overseer desires a noble task. It's a good thing. And Paul's saying men should aspire to that. And I pray that there will be men in this church who aspire to that. Office of overseer. 
so that together we could seek and, and seek the Lord in prayer and in the ministry of the Word. And, and of course, so just practically speaking, practically speaking, I think, so then what that would mean then is that we would, we would need to kind of shift our idea of pastor a little bit. Because in Baptist life, we think, well, pastor's the guy we pray to preach on Sundays. But biblically, I want to suggest maybe it's something different. Maybe it's just one man among other godly men who are also elders, pastors, overseers. And there is precedence, I believe, to, to set maybe one elder or pastor apart as the primary teacher. There's precedent for that. For example, in 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there is precedent to say, well, there'll be one primary among these men who might preach and teach, but the group as a whole would lead and guide and direct the church. That means, that means to be a pastor, you don't have to be paid by the church. To be a pastor doesn't mean you have to be your full-time vocation. To be a pastor, elder, overseer means that together with other godly men, men of integrity and wisdom, you're seeking the Lord together to shepherd and guide and care for the church. I think it's something for our church to think about and to consider and to pray about. I, th- I think there's strong biblical warrant for it. So finally, as we look at what is biblical church leadership? The head of the church is Christ. Under the head of the church is the congregation as a whole who is responsible for how we respond to God. And then the congregation then is responsible in, in, together as in wisdom and in discernment to choose those whom, to choose men of godliness and integrity whom it will put as, at its helm to help lead them in the offices of deacons and pastors and elders and overseers. And so the point is this. If we, wanna, if we, wanna, if we want God's blessings, we've got to do, thing God, do things God's way. And the reality is, is whether, whether any of us in here will be the office, be in an office of the church, we should all aspire, man, woman, boy, or girl, we should all aspire to, be, to fulfill these qualities of character and this passion for obedience so that whatever place in service you are, we're going to vote on committees this evening. If you're on a committee then you have a responsibility before and in the fear of God to say, God, what do you want me to do with this ministry that you've entrusted to me? How can I glorify you in this ministry that you've given to me? I want to I I use this opportunity to lead in this specific ministry to make disciples of Christ, to make Christ known, to glorify his name, to make the mature disciples among our church family and to Proclaim Christ in the community. How can I do this with this ministry opportunity that I've been given? Regardless of your place in the church, wherever you are planted, whatever place of service that you're in, we should be asking, how does God want me to lead in this place? And as we do, God will show up. And we'll see lives changed by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, which tells